We've been practicing together now for just a little over a day. And uh, it might seem a little longer than that, perhaps. But uh, in fact, it might even be slightly less than that since we formally began the retreat. And I'd like to offer some reflections on the on the practice and the uh, the importance, really, of of loving kindness, of friendliness, of metta. This practice of befriending life, of befriending ourselves and our experience. And when I come to give some, offer some reflections in the evening on a retreat like this, I like to take a moment just to, in a kind of traditional way, go and express my appreciation and uh, gratitude to the Buddha for the remarkable teachings that he has offered the world that he's offered us and that he's offered me and so there's a there's a moment of going for me and just just touching into the sense of appreciation the sense of gratitude and the traditional form in terms of bowing is a, a support for that but what's really important is that that marking that honoring of something that one values that something that one appreciates it's actually very much a, a support for the for the heart and the Buddha was once asked in uh, a rather famous sort of exchange between himself and his uh, cousin and attendant, Ananda. He was once asked by Ananda, he said, would it not be true to say that half of our practice is for the cultivation, for the development of metta, for loving kindness, for friendliness? And uh, the Buddha responded, he said, no, no, it wouldn't be true to say that. It would be true to say that all of our practice is for the cultivation of loving-kindness, of friendliness, of metta. And I think it's a really useful kind of expression of what is important, a really helpful perspective to bring to understand that in the end, everything is in the service of, is called to be in the service of kindness, of friendliness, of metta. And... His Holiness the Dalai Lama once asked, it's again a very well-known quote, he once asked, you know, so what is your religion? And his response is, my religion is kindness. And so in in the teachings of the Buddha, in the, what we call the Dharma, there's, there's not so much a sense of needing to, or trying to orient towards some belief system or model about the universe or idea of... Um, Metaphysics, it's much more a relational and behavioral framework that's offered to us as something which supports well being and happiness. And this quality and this capacity for kindness, for friendliness, for well wishing, for expressing through both our practice but also our lives, our, our depth of caring for life, for ourselves, for each other. This is something that's really central to what it is that we are and to what it is that's most important. And the basis for the arising of this quality, as I've mentioned a couple of times I think in the day, is this remembering or recollecting or adverting, turning our attention to that which is wholesome, that which is good, that which is worthy, that which is of value, that which we see as precious or admirable or beautiful in others and in ourselves. And so there's a very much a practice where we're, we're choosing to turn our attention to something or an aspect of what's here that gives rise to a wholesome response, that gives rise to something beautiful, something powerful and blessed in the world. And this capacity we have to choose, because we can't necessarily choose what our responses will be to what we're exposed to. I mean, I mean, I don't know if you've tried that to say, you know, can I have a different response to what's happening? It doesn't always work. If we're having a reaction to something, mostly we need to make space for the reaction. We can't just say, I think I'd rather have a different reaction. I'm feeling angry, but I think I should just feel happy about this thing that I don't like doesn't seem to work for me anyway. If someone's figured that one out, you know, let me know later. Um, it would be great to have that particular capacity. But mostly that's not what happens for us. And yet 
what we can see is, oh, the way I pay attention and to what I pay attention, this fundamentally affects and conditions the responses that arise within me. And if the tendency and the habit of the mind is to pick up those things that we don't appreciate, that we don't like so much, that we're not so happy about, that irritate, frustrate, distress or embarrass us in others or in ourselves, if we tend to pick those up, then the responses that arise in the heart, inevitably, quite naturally it seems, at least until we've really worked with our heart and our mind to some considerable degree, the responses are often more in the realm of judgment, rejection, disconnection, and all of those are actually deeply painful to us, as well as, in fact, painful and we could even say harmful in the way they play out in the world. So the ability to turn our attention to that which we appreciate that which we value, that which we care about. This isn't denying that there are things that are problematic or that need to be attended to in ourselves, in others, or in the world. Absolutely not. But seeing that by turning our attention to what we appreciate, to what we value, something actually happens in the being, in the heart, in the the humanity of us that brings a response that's actually more useful, that's contributive to well-being and happiness. And this is why we can practice this. So in the, in the, in the practice of the, of the loving kindness, of the friendliness, of the metta meditation we're engaged in, that capacity to come back again and again. If, we're, if it feels a little heady or if it's become a little mechanical or we're just sort of cranking through a few phrases or just sort of sitting there trying to sort of, sort of cook up a little bit of warm feeling for something or someone, you know, and it's not quite happening... It's not a case of trying to just push at it or press on it harder. It's more like, okay, let me just go back to what can I bring to mind? What can I remember? What can I evoke that I appreciate, that I care about, that I I value in something? This remembering what we care about, what we value, what we appreciate is something, something profound, in fact. Because remember is often kind of counterposed to forget. And that's a certain and important usage of the word remember. But remember also counterposes a rather different word, dismember. And when you think about what happens if something is dismembered, it's actually, in a way, cut up. Its parts are separated into pieces and its wholeness is lost. That's what we talk about when something is dismembered. So the process of remembering, both in terms of including our experience, whatever it might be, but also turning our attention to and remembering that which is wholesome, that which is beautiful, that which is worthy of our appreciation, it has the effect of actually bringing together a wholeness, or not bringing together, but revealing, re-establishing a wholeness in life, in ourselves, in each other that is so important for us to be in touch with. Because our minds, it seems, are trained and all too well trained to be able to pick up the problems in order to fix them. And it's a great survival skill. You don't want to note, to fail to notice the saber-toothed tiger hanging around at the outside of your cave. Um, Because if you miss that thing, it's going to eat you and that's the end of the story. So... In a a certain way, our systems wired up for survival are primed to notice what's a problem and what's dangerous and what's not okay. If you don't immediately notice the beautiful flowers or the wonderful apple tree just outside the door, it's okay. You can notice it a moment later. It'll still be there. It won't have gone away. And so our system is actually somehow less tuned in to that. And it's a biological... um, neurological and psychological phenomena that's well documented that we know and understand. But it creates an imbalance in our perception of experience and our interpretation and understanding of ourselves and of life. And that is the basis on which we respond to life, how we perceive and understand it. So this process of acknowledging, turning towards, it's sometimes even a little tricky for us, isn't it, just to acknowledge that there are things that are really of value about who and what we are. 
to accept that, yeah, of course, I've got things I could improve on it. And, you know, I imagine maybe for some of you there's some of that too. But one can see, yeah, all these things that could be improved. But isn't there that great? I think it's on a T-shirt or a bumper sticker. You know, I may not be p- perfect, but parts of me are wonderful. And we can maybe see that. And, oh, yeah, we're not pretending. It's not about pretending perfection, but honoring this. And it, there's something about this that we have to relearn. We have to rediscover the remembering, the, the regathering into its wholeness of our life and of all of life, in fact. And the, the poet Galway Canal speaks of this in a, a rather lovely poem, St. Francis in the Sow. He writes, The bud stands for all things, even those things that do not flower. For everything flowers from within, of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely. Until it flowers again from within, of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart to the blue milk and dreaminess, shuddering and spurting from the fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths, sucking and blowing beneath them. The long, perfect loveliness of Sal. So this process of remembering Remembering in relationship to ourselves, remembering in relationship to each other, the long perfect loveliness of what it is that we are, that may perhaps ultimately have a greater weight, weightiness in life than the myriad particularities of our limitations or failings. So there's something fundamental about our capacity to orient to what is wholesome, what is good, what is beautiful in beings, in ourselves and each other. And to align our intentions with this, to to found an intentionality on that orientation. And the intentionality being one of kindliness, of caring, of friendliness, for which this practice is a framework and a support. And so we also need to understand the relationship then between the intentions we establish, we generate, and what happens in our experience. And this is something very central, again, to the teachings of the Buddha. This quality of metta, of friendliness, of kindliness, is central to the teaching. And it's the quality which is opposed to ill will, which is, we could say, the opposite or the counterbalance to ill will or to anger. Not anger in its energy and its fire, but so far as it has the intention or the wish to harm others, to wish not well on others, which we could say ill will is perhaps a better expression of that, which we can see is perhaps the opposite of that well-wishing where we wish well for another, or wish well for ourselves. And when we see what happens from the process of ill will, of anger that is acted upon unconsciously, that that reactivity, that negativity hurts us, equally as it hurts others. Our heart in the grip of such reactivity is is in pain, is in distress. And I think we know this. And yet, we don't necessarily know how to hold that place in ourselves. 
and how to find something else from which our life can move even in times when there may be many things we are appropriately and justifiably concerned about, distressed about, angry about, we could say. Our ability to respond to life, to others, to ourselves, in relationship to those things that do concern us, is not supported if our heart closes, if we get caught in reactivity. And in terms of understanding the intention and our experiences, the bottom line sort of teachings, simple teaching, but essential for us to really understand. When we act from kindliness, from friendliness, from caring towards others or ourselves, happiness follows. Like our shadow on a sunny day. When we act from anger, from ill will, from a wish to harm or a disregard for the welfare of others. Suffering follows, like a cart follows the horse that pulls it. To use the, the, the simile from the, the Buddha used. And again, I don't think this is news to anybody. We know this. We see the painful and distressing effects of when we get caught in and act out anger, rejection, ill will. And yet sometimes we find that we're unable to not do so. The force, the power of it is such, the pattern, the groove in the mind is such that we cannot keep ourselves from being carried away by it. And so there's a, a real need for us and, and hopefully a real genuine motivation in us to, to see, can we cultivate, can we develop the sense of friendliness, of kindliness, of well-wishing for our own happiness equally as for the welfare and the well-being of others and for our world which so needs us as human beings, as, as agents within this, this sensitive, complex, vulnerable living system that needs us to find our kindness and our care and to act with courage from this. So in this, there's a, a process of expressing an intention, the intention to act from kindness, from friendliness, is fulfilled simply in wishing well for oneself or another. In the teaching of the Buddha, we understand that there are actions of speech, of body, and of mind. And actions of mind are these intentions and the expression in words is actually also a verbal function, we could say, but it's, act, it's regarded as an action. It has a consequence. It pr produces a ripple effect. And every time we contact, we connect with a wholesome intention and act on it, express it, even just an, may I be safe, or may you be well. Or may this person be at ease. That simple orientation and simple enacting of a wholesome intention is like planting a seed. We don't necessarily in the moment of planting a seed expect to, to have some juicy fruit or delicious nourishing vegetable immediately available to eat. When we practice we might imagine, oh, I just planted all those seeds. Well, you know, where's all the fruit? Now, it doesn't always happen quite like that. It's not always immediately in the practicing that we find the fruit of it. And yet if we understand that these wholesome intentions bring happiness, if we see that and we can look in our lives to see that that's so, it doesn't mean it makes life easy for us. I wouldn't say that. Sometimes it seems more challenging. And yet, for our heart, in the depth of our heart, there's more ease, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, when we're really living in accordance with what it's caring and what it's love invites or asks of us. So these phrases of planting seeds, we could say, of wishing well, 
need to be connected with the intention. It's not just the words. And that's where we bring in a reflective quality and engage with our heart that sense of what we wish for or that sense of what we care for in another, what we appreciate in others and ourselves. Coming to that, turning to that, is what engages the wholesome intention. It's a natural response to wish well for that we appreciate or that which when we're attending to what we appreciate. So again, this practice is founded in a certain training of the attention. Not having our mind be simply at the mercy of whatever is the loudest or the most familiar or compelling of the range of different things we could give our attention to. And the very act of giving attention is an offering, something precious, this attention, this capacity that we have. And choosing to give it to that which brings forth wholesome responses from within our heart as it naturally does, this is actually a very powerful thing, a very powerful action. And yet, as we've seen, although it sounds like a lovely thing to do if one has never done it before, the idea, oh, I could just sit and wish lovely things for beings that I care about and for other beings and for myself. What, a, what an enjoyable day I'm going to have, we might have imagined. And it's not unreasonable. In fact, of course, it can sometimes be really sweet. There's something really beautiful we can touch in that well-wishing or just a sense of what we're connecting with, appreciation and, and caring and kindness, just honouring that can be lovely at times. And yet, as I imagine many, if not all of us, will have encountered, even just in the the time since the, you know this afternoon when we engage in this this, this, this practice, specifically that it's not easy. It sometimes brings out entirely the opposite of what we wish to cultivate. It's like when we start planting things in the garden. Have you ever noticed that the weeds come up before the vegetables? They seem to grow more quickly and the fact that you cultivated the soil took out all the competition. But yet still there are things there that arise. And so it's really important to understand that we're working with our heart, and our heart is going to reveal whatever's here, which is not just its loving capacity, but also the patterns and the layers and the sort of structures of reactivity that might be there. And so if you've encountered irritation or anger or judgment or disinterest, can't be bothered, arising in you, please don't be disheartened. It's very much part of the process. And to just to open, see, can I, can I meet myself in that place with some kindness, with some allowing? It's like, oh, it's, it may not feel like good news, but whatever we discover in our experience, it's good news that we can see it, that we can meet it, that we can begin to hold it in a spirit of kindliness and care. And... A friend of mine once described to me their experience on a retreat uh, practicing loving kindness and compassion and wishing well and really working with the heart and this and over an extended period and said to me at one point they were practicing with this image of a, of a baby and just wishing well and extending loving kindness and compassion to the baby and the next moment in their mind's eye they saw themselves headbutting <laughs> this, this little being. And it was quite shocking and horrifying in a certain way that in that tender sort of kindliness moment, then suddenly, boom. You know, and this is not someone who's engaged in a lot of headbutting, I would say, <coughs> in their life. And it's like, wow, where does that come from? So I don't know if you've got to that point in your own practice. I'm not saying it's a sort of developmental stage we all have to get to, but it, it's kind of useful to have some perspective also on our own you know, irritations and such things that arise or frustrations that arise. It's so important that in this practice, both as a part of the practice, but also as an overarching attitude that we bring a gentle, allowing and forgiving kindliness to ourselves, to what happens. Because we're not in control of it. We don't make everything happen that happens. Sure, we can influence it. We're not somehow 
um, simply bystanders or victims of what's happening, but nor are we in control of and able to determine, excuse me, <coughs> determine the specifics of what arises for us in our experience. That's not given to us. And so we do, however, care deeply about ourselves, about our life, about our world, about each other. And yet one of the ways that we've learned and we've been taught without realizing it by people who were taught it in the same way is to somehow try and put pressure on ourselves or on others to conform with what we think will bring happiness, well-being, safety, acceptance, love into our life. But we do it in a way that involves being really hard on ourselves. And there's uh, at least a couple of people speaking about that in the group um, this evening before supper that I was with. And just it's really touching to see and to recognize, as we, we all can probably recognize those ways we're so hard on ourselves. It's like we've been trained to reject aspects of how we are, that we didn't choose to be that way, and yet we've been told that's not okay. And that if you don't somehow suppress it, then that will be a basis for you being rejected by others. And this this pattern of judging, of criticism, of negativity, we learnt it from people mostly when we were really young, before we had a clue what was going on. Just the way they responded to certain things we did or didn't do, and how we were taught us, oh, if I'm going to get on here, I better not be like this, I better be like that. We internalize that as a pattern of pressuring ourselves. Of course, these people, they learned it from somebody else too. They didn't decide, I think I'll be like that. No, they were already that way. They learned it really young from other people who learned it really young, from people who learned it before them and before them. It just goes on back into the mists of time. It begins with little single-celled organisms sitting in a soup of chemicals and when they encounter an unpleasant or potentially poisonous chemical going, contracting. That's it. And we're umpteen billion little little juicy balls of um, life that when they encounter something unpleasant go, "Eh." it's basically what they do. But we've constructed out of that this whole thing that, sure, it's a good idea if something's actually going to poison you to try and, you know, get away from it, but mostly that's not what's happening. Most of what we reject or recoil from is not actually dangerous to us. But becoming locked into that process of rejecting and recoiling, that is dangerous to us. It's deeply painful to us. And so if we see that tendency, maybe we can bring something else to meet it. Maybe we can bring a different quality to that. And we could, I think, to, you know, the tendency way we tend to reject experiences that are painful or scary or unflattering in some way, embarrassing. Our our bodies, our minds, you know, they do all kinds of things that we would rather they didn't. Also, you know, often inconveniently or embarrassingly in front of others. But what if we were to perhaps imagine that all of these things, what they need from us, what they're calling from us first of all for, is some understanding. That we didn't make it happen this way. And to see that, you know, everything we do, even the most unskillful things, and boy, I imagine you, but certainly I have done some pretty unskillful things. I I feel really sorry that it happened that way. But actually, if one looks, one sees that was actually some part of a struggle to try and take care of what I thought I needed or protect myself from what I felt I couldn't handle. And pretty much everyone's doing the same thing. It's pretty much how it is for us when we do things that are unskillful. So we could, I think, listen well and take to heart the advice of a an Indian an Indian spiritual practitioner and teacher, Kirpal Venanji, he gave this advice. He said, break your heart no longer. Each time you judge yourself, you break your heart. You stop feeding on the love that is the wellspring of your vitality. But now the time has come, your time, 
to live, to celebrate and to see the goodness that you are. There is no evil, no wrong in you or in any other. There is only the thought of it and the thought has no substance. You are dear, divine and very, very pure. Let no one, no thing, no idea or ideal obstruct you. Even if one comes in the name of truth, forgive the thought for its unknowing. Do not fight it. Just let go and breathe into the goodness that you are. What would it mean to breathe into that fundamental goodness that is founded on the fact that we do care and that we are actually trying our best and that, yes, we may not always be perfectly skillful at that, but that isn't something we can or should blame ourselves for because we're still learning. The very nature of our life is we're continuing and needing to continue to learn, to wake up. The caring that we have needs to be supported by understanding, by wisdom. And to cultivate, to cultivate this capacity for kindliness, for friendliness, for warmth, is an immense support for our well-being. And a honouring of the the basic goodness that moves us in everything we do. That wish for happiness, for well-being, for protection, for safety, for fulfilling our needs comes because we care and only because we care. So in this practice, it's, it can seem a little strange and it feels often clunky to begin with. And I remember first, when I first encountered it um, as, a, as a kind of a this sort of sustained practice of coming back, using the phrases, bringing someone, myself or another to mind. It's a little bit, you know, it's like you got to, how do, I, how do I bring together the head and the heart, the thinking and the conceiving that often sort of feels like it takes us away and we can lose touch with a, a sense of heart and a sense of, of, of presence, of warmth, of friendliness. So again, there's just a process of coming back, beginning again many times. If we notice it starts to become a bit dry or sterile, just stopping and pausing. And we can also notice that sometimes we kind of get into a bit of a sort of a roll with it, and we kind of we sort of just in the sort of the, the the telling of the the practice or the the offering of the phrases, and we we stop really paying careful attention to what else is going on, and that's not always a good idea. It's actually really helpful to keep checking in with your body, keep paying attention to your body, perhaps at times really feeling into the breathing in the chest, as I've suggested, or we've invited, and or just that sense of where we feel the caring in the body. As, as someone was pointing out this afternoon, that sense of the, the, the resonance, the vibration of the body. What does it feel like as I orient, as I turn this way? And, you know, I remember once I was practicing, doing these practices uh, for a period of uh, sort of several weeks. And at some point along the way, I was really in the rhythm and in the stream of it. And it was like it was just flowing and flowing. And I remember going to get a cup of tea. And I had the cup and there was a big bucket full of tea with a, a ladle, and I was about to pour the tea into the cup. And I was going, you know, may I be happy, may I be well, may I be safe. Well, I can't remember, may I was going, may you or they or someone be happy, be safe. And just in the last moment, and thankfully, I saw what I was about to do. I had the cup upside down in my hand. It was one of those cylindrical cups. It wasn't obvious, except that the top was solid. And I was about to pour a ladle full of scalding liquid onto it. And what would have happened in that moment, my hand and my face, and possibly anyone else around, would have been hurt, to say the least. I saw it and I was like, oh, okay, a bit more mindfulness needed here. A little bit more attention to practical things. So if you notice in any way that you start to feel a little bit sort of, oh, I'm getting a little bit too much into that sort of head orientation, really good to come back down, sometimes to coordinate the, um, the, the phrases with the breath. Just like, okay, on the out breath, there's the phrase, may you be happy. Breathing in, feeling my body, and then on the out-breath, may you be well, or may I be well. Or in walking, it's like with the step, okay, may you be at peace, may you be well. Just that sense of engaging the body. Uh, I, I told a story, I told my uh, the teacher I was working with at the time, 
about what I'd done and she sort of uh, smiled at me rather sweetly and said, oh, well, you know what happened to me once when I was doing this practice? She said, I was, you know, in, in, in an extended period of it and um, she said, I, I got my dinner, served my dinner on a plate and it was, looked really good and I was really looking forward. Then I felt thirsty so I put the plate down on my seat and I went, giveaway isn't it um, I went to get a cup of um, whatever it is she was going to drink and she walked back and she walked really mindfully back she said and sat right in the plate <laughs> like doing this phrase doing these phrases may I be happy may I be and oh and you know again then a real opportunity for for bringing some kindness towards oneself and wow we do sometimes really silly things that we feel sorry about even in the context of our best intentions So it can be useful to hold ourselves with a, a sort of a gentle humour in these processes. And as what we see play out is completely like, oh my gosh, look what happens, look what happens. But you know, it happens for all of us. It's like that for everyone, one way or another. And when we turn to those ways in which it does touch us and ways that we find difficult. What we also start to see, I think, what we can feel is that the very tenderness of our human life, the the very experiences that lead us to close down, we tend to pull away from them, not just because they're painful or difficult or unwanted, and then we close down, or we pull away, or we try to push away. And both the mechanism of pushing away, which is kind of like anger, or pulling away with fear, both of them have the effect of, of contracting, of tightening that that sense of openness, that sense of responsiveness, that the caring and kindliness kind of gets subsumed into the survival urge. That's kind of a bit more, in a way we could say reptilian, and uh, has that kind of slightly colder feeling to it, and the loss of the warm-blooded mammalian resonance, that hearty quality, that warm, friendly quality, we lose in those reactive and very quick um, responses. But as we start to reflect on, as we start to listen to ourselves and hear from each other, listen to the world, what we start to see is it's not just that it's painful or uncomfortable for us or difficult for us, it's that we take it to mean something about me. That I imagine myself, because of what's difficult, scary, painful or embarrassing, I imagine myself somehow separate from, different from, other than, alien to those around me. And yet it's so not true. When we start to listen, when we start to speak, when we open to our pain, if we speak or share about it with others, what we hear and what often happens in the small groups, as again, people commented this evening, we hear, oh actually, it's not just me this happens to, it happens to all of us. This is something shared. And this has a profoundly different effect in the heart. When we see that which is difficult, or scary, or dangerous, or unwished for, this is the dimensionality that we all share in the experience of. And so the the poet Naomi Shihab Nye speaks of this in a poem entitled Kindness. She writes, Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so that you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Native American in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, 
how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out in the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the cloud, from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. It's very interesting, the sense of the being accompanied as closely as by one's own shadow, this quality of kindness and uh, this is a you know a modern american um american Palest- or palestinian american um poet using an image that very similar to the image the Buddha used of acting from kindness and happiness follows us like a shadow, something about that seeing of the sharedness of our situation, that this connects us, even that which is painful and difficulty. Our heart has an amazing capacity in the presence of that seeing and understanding to find kindliness even in the face of great pain and great difficulty. And this is something we can access. This is something that's possible for all of us There's a story I'd like to share that for me really uh, expresses it in a remarkable way. And the story concerns a woman in uh, Los Angeles, I believe it was, who was attending a trial of a young man who was, I think, 14 years old, 15 maybe. And the young man was on trial for the murder of her son. And she attended and heard the story of his uh, involvement in a gang and his requirement, the entry price for joining the gang was, you have to kill someone, doesn't matter who, just kill someone and then we'll take you seriously. And her son was killed by this young man, her son just a year older than his murderer. And she sat through the trial, he was found guilty, he was sentenced to a significant period in a juvenile institution, juvenile detention institution. And at the end of the proceeding, she looked at him and she said, looked him straight in the eye, she said, I'm going to kill you, and left. And he was incarcerated for some period, as I said. And At some point in that time of incarceration, she sent him a letter, just saying, you know, hello, how are you? And she sent him another one, and another one. And after a while, she said, can I come and visit you? She went to visit him. She spoke with him. She got to know, she got to hear the story. The deprivation of his early life and the difficulty of surviving on the street without a tribe and the, the desperate need for the safety of a tribe of which a gang, a violent youth gang, was the only form available to him with no functional family or support. And over the years he was in prison, she visited him regularly. And at the time... At the end of his, 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 his sentence, as it was coming to the end, she said to him, she said, you know, I've really appreciated getting to know you over these years. And I feel like you've got to know me. And, you know, I have an empty room at home. If you'd like to come and stay with me when you come out of prison, you'd be very welcome. And he did. He took that offer and he lived with her. And some time after that, she sat him down and she said, you know, do you remember what I said to you in the courtroom? And he says, I couldn't forget it. It was like burned into his heart. And she said, you know, I meant it. I did not want that in you which could kill my dear son not having even met him or knowing him. I did not want that abandoned, hurt, 
painful, hating place. I did not want that to survive. And you know, I think we've done it. And so, I don't have a son anymore, but if you'd like to be my son, I'd like to adopt you. And he did. And she did. And something amazing in that to me, of that woman could see the truth of the situation, the horror and the tragedy of the loss of her child. Yes, and the deep pain of that, yes. And the seeing that, oh, that came from the deep pain of someone else. And that her wish was not to kill the human being, but to attend to the grief and the pain and the loneliness in that person's heart. And in the dealing with and the transforming of that, a healthy young man emerged. And I regard this as something as a miracle. And this is the capacity of our hearts. We have this capacity. We can tap into this beautiful, wise and caring heart. Because really in this life, what is it that's important for us? What is it we want to bring into this world? Many things, of course, are possible. But to bring our heart more and more fully into the world, to bring the caring and the kindness from within it, to extend that to offer into this life, this is perhaps as great an offering as we can imagine. And not just for the world, but for ourselves. What do we wish for our life? Traditionally, you know, the Buddha spoke of the benefits of this practice. That we would, if we practice loving kindness and friendliness and caring in this way, the one would sleep easily and wake easily. That other beings would love us and protect us. That our face would be radiant, our mind serene. That we would die unconfused and be reborn in happy realms, whatever that might mean for you. There's something about the deepest caring for our heart and our mind that this offers us. This kindliness, this care, this friendship. And, you know, the Buddha once said, and it seems rather challengingly, rather radically, he once said, you know, of this practice and this, this, this capacity, he said, even though, this is one of his famous teaching similes, even though one was being sawn in half by bandits, wielding a two-handled saw. One who would not have loving kindness in their heart for those beings would not be a follower of my teaching. And it's like, okay, so he's setting the bar quite high. Yeah, I can see the possibility, maybe, at some distant point in the future. Maybe I can't, but hmm. I think... What one needs to understand in that, he's not suggesting that if someone's attempting to saw you in half, that you just sort of say, oh, great opportunity for practice, I think I'll let him, you know, come on, you know. It's like, I think one would also say kindness and compassion would suggest, if you can, escape, protect yourself. Actually, protect them from the horror of what they're doing, equally, would be a valid reason to protect or to prevent that happening. But if one really had no nothing else but this... What would one wish to have in one's heart in one's last moments of life? Where would you wish to be in those last breaths? In fear and hatred and anger and ill will? Or might we want to be in a place of, of caring and kindness for whoever is with us in those last moments, no matter what the circumstance? That's quite an invitation. That's quite a calling. I would... Understanding this as a practice of intention. I would actually, in a way, 
gloss the translation because I'm not a translator. I would say that really what is being said here is one who had the wish to have other than loving kindness in their heart would be not a follower of this teaching. What actually is there isn't dependent upon our wish, but the intention might be, can I connect with that in any circumstance? The very fact that it's framed this way to me is a, it's actually quite a lovely thing. It's like, wow, just imagine that possibility for our life, for our world. What an offering that might be. What a blessing that could be. So let's just sit quietly together for a few moments. So may we all, in our practice here together, and in our lives, may we, may we remember to attend to the goodness in our hearts and in each other, to honour the, the deep caring within each and all of us. May we find the courage and the willingness to open to those places that we find not so easy to include. To understand that we share the terrain that is not easy. That in fact fundamentally unites us in our journey. And may we all deepen in kindliness and friendliness. for our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings. 